Hi, nice to meet you. For those of you who have been here before, you know what you're in for. I talk fast and I sweat, and if you're sitting in the front row, you're going to get spit on. <laughs> and you guys are like danger close today, just so you know. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we will be in Ephesians. We will be in Matthew. We are going to go to the big bad book of Revelation. We're going to be all over the place. Uh, luckily for you, Craig Fitz is on the computer-generated machine, and he will be tapping the buttons in the right spots, I hope. Craig, are you ready? All set. All set. Okay, he sounds confident. How many of you have those things in your toolbox or around your house that are good for more than one thing? Okay, what are they? Duct tape. Yes, good for everything. You win. What about, what else? Who? Good for hiding bodies and... Zip ties. Okay, what else? Roommates. Roommates. <laughs> Debatable. Did I hear something here? Knives. Knives? Good for everything. everything. Anthony, I thought the same person that said zip ties said knives. <laughs> I was like, whoa. <laughs> we need some psychiatric care over here. Things that are good for more than one thing. I love those things on Facebook. They, they suck you in and say, click next, because they have those things that you can also use uh, Coca-Cola not only to drink, but to clean the calcium and lime off of your uh, shower door. Have you seen that? And then you wonder, why am I drinking this? <laughs> or the little tab on top of the LaCroix, because LaCroix is what we drink. We don't drink sodas. What are you thinking? It pulls over, and you can turn it to the side, and it can also hold your straw. Whoa, whoa, try it. <laughs> it works if you use a straw or you can just drink it. Things that have more than one use. If you're a golfer, you know that you can use a three wood around the green just as much as a putter and get more distance, right? Those of you golfers going, yeah, those of you, most of you who don't golf are like, what's a three wood? But there are things that have more than one use. And I love those things. They're like the little tools that have a, the Swiss Army knife of everything in there that you need. We've been going through what disciples do. It's kind of like our church's view of church and why church is here. All six of our locations are meeting and gathering about just this. What do we do? The first week we talked about we gather together. We come together weekly. We encourage one another. The words spur one another on. We'll get to that verse again today. It means to irritate each other to do good things. We are all irritating. The second week we talked about grow and how we come together and grow and you can't grow by yourself. And there's a picture of the trees with the roots that are intermingled and they strengthen each other. Today we're talking about the next G. Go. We gather, we grow, and we go. And it rhymes. Next week, we have another G. But what we find in by gathering, we come together, we learn who we are in Christ, we learn what we're doing, we learn that, that we are Jesus's, that we have a community together, we grow together, and then the next step in the progression of your discipleship is that your family and your community pushes you out to do something, that you and I were made for more than just to sit on blue chairs in an old building in Ballard. We're made for more than one thing. We're like duct tape or zip ties, or knives, or three woods, or whatever, roommates. We're gonna, we're gonna iffy on that one, Luke. But we're made for more than one thing. 
And when you look at our relationship with Jesus, what we learn is that the gospel is also more than just a one-time thing. And it happened a long time ago. But what we discover is that the gospel is constantly not happened, but the gospel is constantly happening in our midst. It is an ongoing thing that keeps going and going and going, and it never ends. And what it tells us is that you and I are made for more than just a one-time decision. That you and I are made to go. You and I are made to be sent out. So we looked at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We're going to look at it a little closer. We're going to pick on a little bit. My love language is that I pick on you. If I pick on you, it means I like you. And so, so I'm going to pick on this verse. Here's the thing with this verse. I memorized it when I was like this big. I memorized it then. I was in this thing called Cubbies and Sparks and Awana. Anybody else in those things? We can all go, yeah, that was rough. What we would do is we would get together and we would have a Bible verse that they would give us and they'd say, memorize this and come back on Wednesday night and if you tell us the right verse in the right translation, which back then was New King James Version, uh, and they tell us this and, and you tell us the verse, we will give you candy. And I'll do anything for candy. <laughs> Halloween, candy. Let's go. And so, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Many of us who have been at church know this. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The first thing that we'll point out is grace. Grace is a gift. Grace is something that you utterly don't deserve, yet you get it anyway. The Bible emphasizes over and over, and we've heard this before, that it has to be grace that God moves for us because you and I are bent and broken in so many different ways that we have to have God's provenient grace in order to choose him. God's grace moves to us first. The next thing it says, so we respond to God's grace, then it says, uh, we have a part to play. We, we have been saved by grace through faith. And if you think of faith, sometimes instantly you go to the set of beliefs. I believe something, I have faith, I believe this, this, this. You have a creed memorized. However, faith in scripture is an active word. Faith means that you're actually doing something. It's not that you assent to some kind of mental knowledge. Faith is a verb where you now are living in a certain way. Faith draws you out. It's a very active verb and our lives reflect it. So we have a part to play. Our faith moves us. Grace moves towards us and we say yes. But then Paul in Ephesians is doing something else here. He says it is the gift of God. All this faith and this grace isn't something that we muster. It's not something that we have or we ascend to. Various religions in the world will say there's a ladder, an eight-step ladder, or there's grateful path, there's karma, there's the five pillars. And what they say is that there is this uh, ascend thing that says work harder and then God will be pleased with you. So you essentially have to work for something. Paul says that following Christ is different. Everything's been done. All we have to do is simply follow it, have faith, and we're there. Religion can't save you. Jesus comes and says to religion, it's not about the religion order, it's about my grace, and you receive it through faith. You can't earn it on your own. You can't save you. It has to be grace. And so Paul contrasts in Ephesians this works-based thing by, and then says, no, we have salvation through grace. Now here's the problem that we fall into. We love Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. 
And we put the period right there at, at the end of boast because we don't want to brag. It's all God. And we stop there. We suffer as a church, as a Christian body, from something called biblical scripture nearsightedness. Mild to severe based, based on the commercial. Everything is mild to severe in those pharmaceutical commercials. So we have biblical scripture nearsightedness. We love to take two pieces of scripture, lift them from the text, sew them together, put them on our email blast, and say, this is what it means to be saved by grace through faith so that no one can boast. It is the work of God, and we stop there. And then we take this gospel, and there's a side effect of that biblical scripture, nearsightedness. It takes your faith and shrinks it to a one-time event. You become a one-trick pony. All you can do is one thing. And the gospel becomes something that happened in the past. Paul put verse 10 on the back of this thing. Is that part true that we are saved through faith? Absolutely true. We are saved by grace through faith. It, we can't do it on our, on our own. But Paul does something here. He adds verse 10. We are saved by grace through faith and then we are something. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for do, to do. You and I are made for more than just a one-time decision. Do you see it? Grace, faith, handiwork, which is this loaded Greek word poema, which means you are a bundle of personality, you are a bundle of gifts, you are a bundle of talents, and there's things that you are specifically wired to do. That is a huge fly right there. You and I are wired to do, it just buzzed the tower and I felt its wind. <laughs> but there are things that you and I are wired to do based on who you are, God's handiwork, in order to do good things. This is a challenge to us that you and I are certainly more than just a one-time decision. We were created to do good. We are a work of art. We read verses 8 and 9 and we stop there and then we find ourselves paralyzed. Okay, I made this decision. And then you start hearing this question come up in Christian circles. Maybe you've said it yourself. But what am I called to do? What do I do now? It's because we've stopped at the end of verse 9 and we stop seeing ourselves as you are empowered and pushed to do more than just that. Here's what the Bible says, or here's what the Bible rather doesn't say. It doesn't say that you can make a one-time decision when you were five years old and then live the rest of your life in a chair and never do anything and be just fine. The Bible says that your belief, your faith should pick you up and carry you off to do good works. Why? Because you all are God's handiworks. You all are a work of art. If you have the bravery, tell your neighbor that they are a work of art. You can do it. You are a work of art. You're a work of art. I know, I'm a masterpiece. We are created for something. And what, we, what happens is you and I, mostly me, don't get this. I didn't get this. My Awana and Sparks and Cubbies when I was this big didn't teach me this. They taught me the one-time decision. 
And all through high school, it was just, I'm just sitting here waiting to die because I've made this one decision back when I was six. So I've got like 74 more years. I thought everyone died at 80 back then. And so I've got 74 more years to live. And then finally, I'll get to experience what I had made the decision when I was six to experience. But that's not it. The gospel is something that doesn't happen to you once. It is something that is constantly bringing you life. In fact, we say this. If you really, Jesus said this and we repeat it. If you really want to find life, you'll realize that it has to be given to Jesus. You have to lose it to follow him. And when we keep following him more than just a one-time decision, we will find the life that we're all looking for. You and I were made for more. We're called to more. So let's look at John chapter 20. What I want to do is look at some of these good things that you and I were made for more to do. John 20 verse 30. Craig, how you doing? Real good. Okay. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. I wish they would have recorded them, but... But these are written that you, might, you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. When you ask somebody this question, what does it mean to be a Christian? What is usually the answer? You believe certain things about Jesus. You've prayed a six-word prayer or whatever it is. You have ascended to a mental thing. You believe in the creeds. Is it true? Yeah, there's some things that we believe as Christians. There's some things that we believe about God, we believe about Jesus, we believe about the Spirit that make us set apart from other faiths. There are the essentials that we have. But is that the whole story? Just believing in something? No. Again, we're trying to illustrate that God is calling us to something else, that we are made for more than just one thing. Because here's what we do, it's what I did. I sat in church and I made my decision and I sat there and thought, boy, I'm sure glad that dude's up there and he's in full-time ministry. I'll just put money in the offering and let him do whatever. That's my job. I'm just called to come and sit. And then they, those who work in the church, can do this whole Jesus thing. But Jesus calls us to something radically different than what I thought. He calls us to get our hands dirty. John says this, right believing is important. You are called to understand accurately what God is like. However, right believing should lead you to the next step of right living. There is this idea that you and I can say something with our mouths and have no effect on how we live. It's called Facebook. We can say things, we can put it out in the universe and it never changes anything about us. We can go to church on Sunday, sing all the right words, do everything you're supposed to do, take communion and have no heart change. John is saying that when you believe the right thing about Jesus, it goes inside of you and it begins to change you. Scripture doesn't say that we can say one thing and act another way. When you follow Jesus, believing in him will automatically lead to a certain way of living. Is it perfect? No. You and I are, are not called to be perfect because guess what? We can't be. We're going to sin. We're going to mess up again. And when we do, we have a God who's faithful and just to forgive us from anything that we have done. Are we called to be guilty? No, it's not called to be guilt. We're not called to always feel bad about something we've done. 
we getting it? We're called to do more. We're called to live a certain way. Matthew 5 says it this way in verse 16. And there's more to this than what's going to be on the screen. So I'll read it and then you'll catch up to me. Matthew 5 says this in verse 14. You are a light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. How many of you turn on a light and then put it, instantly put it out? No, that's not what you do with the light. You don't cover it. It's made to allow things to be seen. Jesus is talking about our faith and our lives. We're not called just to believe one time and go away. Our lives then start reflecting the things that we believe and the things that we believe to be right. And our lives begin reflecting Christ. Why? So that the people around us will be able to see what we're doing, see how you live, and then glorify God because of them. Evangelism is what this means. And evangelism for a lot of us sounds like some kind of disorder, right? It sounds like we're talking about political speak. But evangelism was a word before the politics took it over that meant simply living your life, telling people the good news. It's always with, and whenever I heard evangelism when, when I was little, it was always with this bridge analogy, right? There it was always this. There's sinful, evil Brad, okay? Kind of easy to, to picture. Sinful, easy, evil Brad over here. Then there was a huge chasm, a big divide, and then there was perfect Jesus. This was evangelism to me. Then there was a cross, and usually the youth pastors would tear a piece of paper and it would make a cross, and it would make a bridge to cross the great divide. Some of you know that song. There was now a cross to get me across the great divide as a bridge. That was evangelism. That was all it meant. And is it true? Absolutely, that's part of it, but it's not the entire way of thinking about it. Jesus gives us a whole new way of expressing our faith that is more than just a sign by the stadiums. It's more than just a, a cross analogy. It's more about you living your life the way that you say you believe about God. What you believe will bring people, will change your life and bring people towards Christ. How will people know that God is good? Jesus says it's how his followers live. How will people know by God how God is loving? Jesus says it's by how his followers will love. Will it be imperfect? Yes. Will we mess it up? Yes. But the goal is that we gradually more and more make Jesus, put Jesus on display in our lives. This is what it means to have evangelism. So Jesus says to us who don't do evangelism, oh yes you do. You do evangelism with every single breath that you take. When you're at work, you do evangelism. When you're driving, you're doing evangelism. That's scary. Uh, when your team is losing and you're throwing things at the television, you do evangelism. Anything that you do, you are sharing the gospel. We speak the gospel. We've convinced ourselves that we only share the gospel by how we live, but there's a lot more than how you live. Sometimes you need to open your mouth. We're afraid to say Jesus' name in anywhere in public, but we'll claim every other name. 
We'll say every other name, but we won't say Jesus' name because it's hard for us. We're afraid of what the, the flack might be. But if you live what Jesus says and people see that God is loving through your actions, people see that God cares through your actions, it'd be very easy to say the name of Jesus because your life has lived a story that glorifies him and shows that he is different than what people expected. It will be imperfect. Jesus calls us instead to live a life out loud for him. And many of us find ways to wiggle out of it. We say, oh, we don't wanna do this because we don't wanna offend, we don't wanna ruin our friendship. We find ways to get out of this. Many of us have this image of life with Jesus as it is something someday, as if heaven will come soon, but Jesus takes that and goes, no, 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 the kingdom is now. It's not something now, it's then. It's not something that's going to come. It's right here in your midst. And our jobs is to live and draw people towards us. We are called for more than just decision. We were made for more than a decision. We are called to live our lives as an example for other people. If you have your Bibles open still, James 2, verse 14, says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? It's a rhetorical question. Uh, he's expecting you all to say no. Uh, then verse 15, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and goes without daily food. If one, of, if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. What does right believing call us to? Right living. Not perfect, but right. We orient ourselves around what we truly believe. The problem is that what we, what we learn, when we learn the right answers, and those answers never propel our beliefs forward. Here's what I mean. If when we believe certain things about God, we believe certain things about theology, it should change the way we live. And here's what I'm guilty of. How many of you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ? Okay, a good majority of us. So God could take a virgin and, and she's now pregnant. Those of you who paid attention in biology class knows that this is very difficult to do. So if we believe in the virgin birth and it's essential for Christ and his, and his godness to be in sin nature for a virgin birth, we believe in that. Yet we worry every day about what we have and what we don't have. We believe that God can do something literally impossible but we don't believe that he will provide for our needs. I'm convicted of this all the time. I miss it. My right believing doesn't lead me to right living. How many of you believe in the resurrected life? So like when we die, we go to heaven. Cool, that's, an even, that's a cool one because people die and we want to see them again in heaven. So we believe this, that God will raise us from the dead. Right believing. How many of you are afraid of dying? You see this? Your right believing of the resurrection that Jesus experienced, that Paul says in Corinthians that you and I experience, should lead us to a right living. That we're not afraid of dying. You see the separation that we have. You, what you believe about Christ should propel you forward and change the way you live. 
This is all that going means. When we believe Christ, when we're gathered together, when we grow together, the next step is that it changes the way you go. It changes the way you live. We all then become, for lack of better term, an evangelist. We tell people about this good news. We tell people about how we live our lives. Paul, Jesus, Paul are all saying the same thing. How you live matters. Revelation, this will be fun. Revelation, Jesus, uh, John is writing this and he's telling the story in the first half of the book about these literal churches that were in existence. And John is seeing this picture of Jesus visiting these churches and there's one phrase that shows up every single time. Here's it is, Revelation 2, 2, I'm gonna read with you. Craig, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Next slide. It's uh, Revelation 2.19. I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, and perseverance. Next one. To the angel of the church of Sardis, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Ouch. Next one. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Uh, One more, 315. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot, or you're neither cold nor hot, and I wish you were either one or the other. Do you see a repeated phrase that happens there? Does he come to the church in Laodicea in Philadelphia and says, hey, I've read your doctrinal statement and it's quite impressive. I've read what you believe about this issue and it's great, well done. No, the first thing that Jesus says is, I know your deeds. I see what you're doing. I know what you did last summer. That's bad. Is he concerned about other things? Is he concerned about what you believe and how you word your dot? No. He's concerned about the deeds. He says, I know what you've done. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're actually dead. Those are words you never want Jesus to say to you. I know what you're doing. Paul says this, you've been brought into a family. You have been saved by grace through faith. Now you have stuff to do. You have a lot of work sitting in front of you. You are called to something more. You were made for more. A couple weeks ago, we camped out on this verse. We're gonna visit it again in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and what? Good deeds. We spur one another on. We push each other towards the next step. Love and good things. Do you see that you're saved for more than just being saved? I hear the word good deeds and I instantly think of the movie Up where that little boy is having to do all of his good things in order to win a merit badge. But that's not what we say or what we should believe when we hear these things. 
This, you are saved to do good things. It's not that you have to do good things in order to be saved. You are saved so that you can actually go out and do the things that are set in front of you. What this is talking about is this radical reorientation of your life, that it's not meant just to serve you, it's meant to serve other people. Literally, the good deeds that sit before you are the simple everyday things that you encounter on your way to living your life. Jesus says in Matthew, I'm sending you out as you're going. You're gonna go to all of these places, teaching them about me, baptizing them. It's the great commission. But when he says, when you go, it's not that you're specifically going to a place. It's more of how you are living your life. It's your everyday life that it orients around other people, how you serve them and not just serving you, which is the question of this. Do we exist for other people or do you exist for you? Who are you here to serve? I'm one of those people, and maybe you're like me, but I always think of somebody where I'm trying to get over this, where they, what can I get from knowing you? Do you do the same thing? Like, oh, I meet this person. What's their special hookup? Can we, can, can we benefit from this relationship? And we start to see all of our relationships in that way. Problems in the marriage usually exist because I think that, I, I, that my spouse exists for me. I think that my friends exist for me. I think that my job exists for me. And then we start thinking that Jesus exists for me. And that our church exists for me. And we get trapped in this consumeristic mindset that everyone exists for you. But what we see in scripture over and over and over again is that you exist for the service of Christ and for others. And what I love about Hebrews is it goes further. We have the opportunity to encourage and bless other people. And it says to spur one another on because you and I can get so trapped in that life that we get complacent and we start to live this self-centered lifestyle where everything revolves around us. It's called the Brado-centric universe. Everything revolves around me when reality, it revolves around Jesus and we are sent out to do good deeds. Paul says this, or what Paul is saying and what Jesus says is that we now exist for something much larger than ourselves. So here's what following Jesus means. It means that we are surrendering all of our entitlements. You and I think that we're entitled to health. Doesn't say that. You and I think that we're entitled to be married. We're not. You and I think that we're entitled to be successful, that we're entitled to fill every single dream on our bucket list, and we're not. Following Christ means that all of a sudden we come to him and say, I'm entitled to follow you, to be just like Jesus in every single step along the way. Jesus found himself on a cross, and somehow we think that following him becomes about us and we'll never have to put ourselves on a cross. Jesus says, come to me and you'll lose your life, but in losing it, you'll find it. The goal of Jesus is not to be more comfortable. The goal of Jesus is Jesus. 
and what he calls you to. It means we surrender our entitlements. It means that our gifts, our talents, our sexuality, our cars, our jobs, our money, our dreams, our children, everything is at Jesus's disposal. It means that we can no longer live in our self-centered universe. It becomes Christ-centered universe. And saying yes to him doesn't mean that I just get my sins forgiven. It means that you and I are sent out on his disposal. And that's the end of it. We are sent. That my calling, our calling, isn't just a job. It's a radical new way of looking at it. And the temptation that we have is we think our calling exists for us. But our calling is something bigger. Wherever you find yourselves, there is your calling. And we're trapped in this universe that says everything's for us. And we don't see the difference. Which leads to the question of this. Do fish know that they're wet? Do they? You can answer back. No. Fish don't know they're wet. Why? Because they've been swimming around in water for so long that it is just normal. When they come out of the water, then they realize something that they're not wet anymore. And they start flopping around. You and I are same with this. We've lived in this consumeristic culture where everything should be about you. You do you and don't worry about what anyone else thinks. You just do you. We become like fish. So when we hear this kind of story that we're made for more than just our own desires, it strikes us wrong. Because we think Jesus exists for us, but we exist for Jesus and our job is to go and to put our entire lives at his disposal. We don't exist for the water that swims around us. We're like fish. Do we know that we are trapped by a consumeristic driven culture? And it becomes very difficult for us to swim outside of that culture because our culture says that everything is our God's and we could do whatever we want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. Our culture says to make gods out of our desires So it's only natural that we bring that attitude here. The gospel is for me, God is for me, the church is for me, everything is for me, including your calling, when the reality is that you're made for more, you're called for more, and you're sent for more. When we take ourselves out of our radically centered universe and surrender them to Jesus, we become Christ-centered in the process. Ephesians 4.11 says this, so God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, everything to equip his people for works of service so that the body may be filled up. You can translate that word service to ministry. You're included in what Paul is talking about here. You and I are ministers. Even though you don't get a paycheck from a church, you're still a minister. Why? Because you've been gifted You've been called to be ministers. So congratulations. This is your commissioning service. You all are now sent as ministers of the gospel. Wherever you find yourselves, this is your first calling. Hebrews says, spur each other on in this calling. Ephesians says that you were created for this calling. Fundamentally, we are people who war against the consumer nature inside of us. And we must start operating under this assumption that we were created for more than just our own desires. We need to start seeing ourselves and our jobs as full-time ministry where we have been sent. You and I are sent for more. We need to see our jobs as doctoring, as ministry, lawyering, 
as ministry, coding as ministry, architecture as ministry. If you're working in a bank, that's full-time ministry. If you're a mortgage broker, it's full-time ministry. If you're working at Red Robin, full-time ministry. If you're looking for a job, full-time ministry. If you're a teacher, full-time ministry. Anything and everything that you do because you have said yes to Jesus, guess what? Full-time ministry. There's no longer a divide. You say yes to Jesus. You put your life at his disposal and everything that you do now becomes your mission. You and I are made for more, we're called for more, and we're sent for more. You must live, we must live our lives as ones who are sent. The biblical picture of family is not a bunch of people who have been gathered together just to come and sit. The biblical picture of family, or biblical picture of church is those who have been called together and it is a body unleashed to go and do good works. So when you walked in, you were given a bulletin and inside the bulletin you found a penny. This was incredibly cheesy, but I started to love it the other day. Tim brought the idea and I was like, that is dumb. <laughs> the next morning in the shower, I was like, that is brilliant. <laughs> in, your in your bulletin is a penny. What is a penny? One cent. Get it? It's a slow burn. Long fuse. You are worth more than a penny, trust me. But you are one cent. You see it? You have been called to go. You are one cent on mission. You are one cent to live your life. Some people are just now getting it. And <laughs> it's impressive. If I keep saying it, you'll get it more. One cent to live your life so that people can see how good your God is. One cent to live your life to see that God cares about those who are marginalized. One cent to live your life so people can see that God is loving and caring and not this cosmic killjoy for people. You are one cent to tell people by the way you live, by the way you speak, by the way you drive, by the way you work, and everything that you do, you are one person sent to reflect the goodness of our Father. Whether you're raising kids, and whether you're working in the high rises downtown, or whether you are doing construction, whatever your hand finds yourself to do, Colossians says we do it as people who are Sent. You are one sent. So I don't know what you do with this penny. I have a whole ashtray of them. So I am one cent. That's even worse. <laughs> maybe you put this somewhere in your wallet. If you have a drill bit, maybe you drill a hole in it. It's only worth a penny. Yeah. 
drill a hole in it, you put it on your key ring, you put it somewhere where it reminds you that you have a job to do, you have a bigger job description than just coming and being and waiting to die in order to go to heaven. You are more than just an object that has one thing to do. You are called to more. You are one sent out to live your life in front of other people. As disciples, we gather together, we grow together, and we go together because we are sent for more. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you give us a job to do, that in front of us we have a decision that we can either stop our lives and live just waiting for something to come along, or we can see that we have a a role to play that we have a calling to live and we have works that need to be complete. God, may we start viewing ourselves today as ministers that no matter who is paying us, we are called for more and we're sent for more. We are sent out. Now Jesus, you give us stuff to do. You give us a body unleashed And Lord, may we change this neighborhood for you as those who are sent out on your mission. It's in your name we pray, amen.